Good morning. Glad to see that last weekend's message apparently didn't scare too many of you off. Either that or you're just gluttons for punishment. Either way, uh, I'm glad to be able to continue uh, to walk through Ephesians with you today. So if you aren't there already, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This week we have uh, a somewhat easier passage to look at, but one that's in many ways just as crucial as last week's. Last Sunday, uh, we, we took a look at how Paul uh, calls us to imitate our Heavenly Father as dearly loved children uh, by walking in love and by walking in light. And today, we're going to see how he's going to tell us that we need to imitate our Heavenly Father by walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. You know, uh, we have a real need for wisdom today. Uh, I'm sure that that's always been uh, the case, but it seems like it's more and more the case all the time. We're going to see in verse 16 of our text today that Paul warns the Ephesians that the day that they are living in is evil. And I have to say that we're probably living in an eviler day uh, today. And if you're just uh, wondering, eviler is a word, okay? (laughs) Eviler is a word, at least that's what Microsoft Word told me, and so we'll just take that as gospel truth. Anyway, anyway, uh, we, we are living in, in a wicked day, and um, we're going to need wisdom if we're going to navigate this in a way that's going to bring honor and glory to our Savior. I've uh, been thinking about this particularly in regard to our high school and college graduates. Uh, like uh, you, I've uh, been making the, uh, the, the grab party circuit the last last uh, week or so. And as I've done so, I've just been really burdened with how uh, our kids are going to need wisdom as they enter into this world, a world that is incredibly and increasingly hostile to those who would desire to follow Jesus. And so they need wisdom, but you know, we all need wisdom, whether we are young and old. So uh, this message today is going to have lots of application for all of us. So with that in mind, let's Let's pray, and then uh, we'll get to work this morning. Father, we come to you today, and uh, again, we want to rejoice and thank you that we have the opportunity to to gather uh, here today. Um, just thinking about uh, Ryan and Bethany Anderson and how they're ministering um, amongst people, many of whom um, who um, really have to to meet um, in, in private, uh, in relative secrecy, who have to worry about whether or not uh, they're going to be interrupted by the police, perhaps thrown in jail. Some of them even um, risking their lives uh, literally every moment to follow you. And yet here we are, we have the privilege to gather uh, with complete freedom, with no worry uh, of our safety today at all. And so we thank you for that privilege, but we pray that you will also guard us against the apathy that at times uh, can come from the the privilege that we have, that we will take this time um, graciously and seriously and just um, uh, seek to make it all that you would have it to be and to invest our time wisely here today. And particularly as we we talk about wisdom, we thank you that uh, you have become to us through Jesus Christ wisdom, um, that you have have given us wisdom in him, that that we have it, that we have it here, of course, in your word. Uh, But Lord, we we need more of it, and we need to grow in that. Uh, And so we just want to pray that your Holy Spirit will work today in such a way that you will make us people who, who walk in wisdom as dearly loved children. So we pray for your spirit. We pray for his power. We pray for growth uh, in our body today for your kingdom's sake. It's in Jesus Christ's precious and mighty and beautiful and wonderful name we pray. Amen. 
All right, let's go ahead and, and read our passage. We just got six verses today, and so pick up with me in verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Paul tells us this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the outline of the passage, and then what we'll dig into it. But it's pretty simple. In verse 15, uh, Paul kind of gives us his thesis. He tells us that as dearly loved children, we need to imitate our Father by walking in wisdom, all right? So, so we don't need to, to be foolish. We don't need to be unwise, but we, we need to, to be wise. And then he's going to go on in verses 16 through 21, and he's going to tell us what it means to be wise. And to be wise, he says, means three things. First, First of all, it means to uh, make the best use of our life. Second, it means to understand God's will. And third, it means to be controlled by the Spirit. So the thesis, all right, is walk in wisdom. And the way that we walk in wisdom is making the best use of our life, understanding God's will, and then being controlled by the Spirit. So I want to say this. On the surface, this might seem like kind of a ho-hum passage, especially in light of what we saw last week and what we're going to see in the weeks ahead. So last week's passage, right, Paul talks about sex. And the next passage, he's going to talk about marriage, which might make us kind of kind of lose this passage um, in, in the shuffle. However, here at the beginning, I just want to stress to you again how important this whole matter of wisdom is, and, and I want to do so uh, with a few verses from Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is, of course, the consummate book on wisdom, all right? It's the, the greatest book on wisdom that's ever been written, and, and it's entirely about wisdom. But in chapter 4, uh, we kind of get the picture, really a summary of everything that Proverbs has to say. And so here's what Solomon says to his sons, what instruction he gives them, and really gives us by extension today. He says this, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Now, that might sound confusing, right? The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, unless you understand that the, the, the starting point for getting wisdom is recognizing that you don't have it, so you need to get it. So you begin to get wisdom when you recognize that you need to get it. You track in there, all right? If you don't, then you need to get wisdom, all right? So, so get wisdom, get insight. It goes on here, prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Now, back in 1993, uh, when I was soon to be a college graduate, uh, it was words like these that God used to grab my attention and start me on the trajectory that I uh, am on today, leading me to where I am today. It was when I was a, a junior in college that for the first time, I, I really began a habit of daily Bible study and prayer. And when I did so, it was in the book of Proverbs. And that, I just have to tell you, has served me so well and has helped me. Uh, now, uh, I've not always done this, but to, to walk in 
in wisdom. And so over these last almost 25 years now, that has served me extremely well. And so, so here's what I can tell you. If you will learn to walk in wisdom, if you will pursue it, it will serve you extremely well too. So with that said, let's talk about what it means to walk in wisdom. Number one, uh, it means to make the best use of your life. Walking in wisdom means to make the best use of your life. Look at verse 16 again. Paul says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, the time that Paul's referring to here isn't clock time. Right? It's not like how some of you are timing how long this message is going to go today, all right? You're not talking about clock time, but he's rather talking about a set period of time. The best way to explain this is perhaps uh, by referring to a gravestone. So you've seen gravestones, right? And on almost every gravestone, there is the person's date of birth and there is the person's date of death. And in between those two dates is a dash. That dash is the time that Paul is referring to here. That The dash is the time that God has allotted to that person. And you know what? We are the same. Every one of us, every single one of us is going to have a gravestone at some point. It's going to give our date of birth and our date of death. And the dash, that time in between those two dates is the time that Paul is talking about here, the time that he is urging us to make the best use of, the time that God wants us to use in order to fulfill all that he has called us to. So let's talk about how we make the best use of of our time. How do we do what Paul is talking about here? You know, many people today think that the way that you use your life in the best way is to, to make a bucket list, right? So if you're going to use your time wisely, you've got to make a bucket list. You've got to try and check off as many things as you can on that bucket list before you die. Now, I don't have anything against bucket lists, and I don't actually think that Paul probably would have had any problem with it either, as long as living for Jesus— all right, and uh, reaching as many people as possible for him are at the top of the list. All right, so you can have a bucket list, that's great and that's wonderful, but at the very top of, of that list, the thing that you really want to check off before you die is saying that I use every single moment that God gave me to live for Jesus and to reach as many people as possible for him. You need to listen here today, friends. If you pursue anything else, anything else, you are going to waste your life. You're going to waste your life. And I just want to urge you today, do not waste your life. Don't waste your teen years. Don't waste your 20s, your 30s, your 40s. Don't waste your 50s, your 60s, or your retirement. Make sure that you are using the most, the, you're using your days in the greatest way possible. And that is by serving Jesus and by reaching as many people as you can for him. One of my favorite quotes comes from a missionary by the name of C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd. And I, don't you just love that name? <laughs> C.T. Studd. And, you know, I got to thinking this week, I've used this quote before, and I'm like, you know, I wonder what this guy looks like, all right? I, w I wonder if he, he really reflects his name. Does his, you know, his looks go along with his name. And so I went online, I Googled his name, um, and so here's a picture of C.T. Studd. And so you, you know how we know that he really was a stud? He had a great beard. <laughs> so... Anyway, it has nothing to do with the message here uh, today, but C.T. Studd was a missionary uh, to China, uh, and he's probably most famous for a poem uh, in which he says this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. 
My friends, our lives will soon be passed. And it doesn't matter if you're 15 or if you're 85, your life is soon going to be over. You, you don't know how long you have left. You don't know how long you have here on this earth. And the only thing that's going to matter when they put you in the grave is how you have used the time that God has given you for Christ. That is only th- the only thing that is going to matter. So I want to ask you today, is this your mindset? Are you living your life as if it will soon be passed? Are you giving your life to things that will last once you are gone? Number two, walking in wisdom means understanding God's will. It means understanding God's will. Look at verse 17 again. Notice what Paul says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is in some ways a restatement of verse 15, uh, but it's also a further explanation. Being unwise, all right, means being foolish, but being wise means understanding God's will. Now, we've probably all at one time or another tried to decipher what God's will for us is or was, right? Many people struggle with, you know, what is God's will for me? And so I think that this can be really, really helpful, right? Now, when we think about God's will, we need to think about it in two ways. First, there is God's will in regard to our salvation. God's will in regard to our salvation. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul tells us that God predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. So in one sense, God's will for our lives, it's the gospel. It's his plan to save us and to bring us into his family through Jesus. And I just want to ask you today, aren't you thankful that part of God's will for your life was to save you? to bring you into his family, that before time began, God determined by his perfect will that he at some point, okay, was going to adopt you in his family, was going to forgive you of your sins, and was going to give you a home in heaven. That is God's will for you. First and foremost, it's his will to save you. Second, there's God's will in regard to how our salvation is to work itself out in the day-to-day of our lives. It's how God desires the gospel to impact every area of our lives. Let me put it another way. God's will for us is, one, to make us his children, and then, two, for us to live as his children, right? So to God's will for you in the first place is to make you his child, and now his will for you is for you to live as his child, like you are his child. So let me say this, when we uh, think about God's will, uh, let's be honest, much of the time we think about it in terms of things like who we're going to marry, where we're going to live, what kind of job we're going to have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, while God certainly has his desires for us and all those things, first and foremost, his will is for us to understand the gospel and how it's meant to transform who we are and what we do. Before you consider God's will for you and some of the specifics of your life, you need to understand that in the big picture, God's will for you is to know, to understand, to have a, to have a great um, just grasp of the gospel, and then to take that understanding and to apply it to virtually every area of your life, specifically who you are and what you do. And I can say this, all right, uh, and I hope that you really will grab hold of this. The more our lives are transformed so that we are like God, 
God's life, the easier it will be to determine what his will is in regard to things like marriage and employment, not to mention a whole host of other matters. So, so let's, um, let's use marriage for example. All right? Should you seek God's will for who you're going to marry? Should you seek God's will for who you're going to marry? Unless you're already married, and then no, okay? It's already yeah, said and done, all right? So just want to be clear on that. But if you're not married and, and, and you're, you're seeking to get married, should you seek God's will for that? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. However, sometimes what we miss is what, what's more important is that we be the kind of person that God would want somebody else to marry. In other words, before we, we wrestle with who God wants us to marry, we first of all need to pursue who God would have us to be so that he would want somebody else to marry us. And when we are the person that God wants us to be, okay, then we're going to be in the place where we're going to know, okay, who he actually wants to marry. And we can apply this in a whole lot of other ways as well. Now, with that said, let's briefly talk about how uh, we can come to understand God's will. We do so through three means. One, of course, is God's word. We've seen this over and over again in Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, all right, lay out for us the gospel. This is why we've taken a lot of time to, to walk through these chapters and to grow hopefully deeper under understanding of God's will for us in and through Jesus Christ, particularly in regards to our salvation. Then in chapters 4 through 6, we've seen and we are seeing uh, God's will in regards to how that gospel is to play out in our lives. So, so I can't say this uh, uh, often enough, but if you want to know God's will, this is the place where you have to start, and it's also the place where you have to repeatedly return to. You have to get into the Word. Let, let me just tell you this. If you're not immersing your life in the Word, there is no way that you can know what God's will is for your life. It's just not possible. You, you have to get into the Word. God reveals His will through His Word. The second means for understanding God's will is prayer. This prayer. Here's what James chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now, how many of us does that include? All of us, right? If you're like, you know, I don't really think I need wisdom today. You really need this prayer, okay? So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So, so let me be clear here. There are some things um, that are not spelled out for us in God's Word. Some things that God wants for us, some decisions that He would have us to make that obviously are not laid out for us in Scripture. God is not going to put in the Bible, you're not going to find in the Bible the name of the person that you're supposed to marry. All right? I mean, you might find their first name, but you're not going to find their last name. All right? You're not going to find the job that He wants you to have. He, he's not going to tell you in His word, the place that he wants you to live. Now, I know some people just kind of randomly flip through the Bible and they say, wherever this land's open, okay, that's where I'm going to move. I'm going to use that as an indication where I should move or who I should marry or kind of job that I should have. I just will tell you, that's a bad way to discern God's will. Don't do that, all right? And, and so there are lots of things and lots of decisions that we have to make in life that we're not going to be able to find specifically in the Bible. And that's why we need to pray and ask for God's wisdom as we attempt to make those decisions so that we can be guided by His Spirit 
to make a decision that would be in line with God's will. Now, let me also say that there are uh, some decisions where we actually don't have to pray for, for God's wisdom because, of course, they're laid out for us in Scripture. Let me go back to the marriage example again, all right? If you're wondering uh, if you should date or marry an unbeliever, I can just tell you what the answer to that is. You don't need to pray. You don't need to ask anybody else. The answer to that is no, okay? Because it's been very laid out for us in Scripture. We're not to be um, uh, unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, so don't marry an unbeliever. Don't date an unbeliever. Okay. Don't even consider doing so. Because by the way, let me just say this. You know what happens if you date an unbeliever? If you date unbelievers, you're going to probably marry an unbeliever, right? So, so don't date, don't marry an unbeliever, laid out for you in Scripture. But there are lots of other examples, okay? So, so for example, if you're dating a, a believer, and you want to know whether or not you should marry that believer, that's why you're going to need to pray because it's not going to be laid out for you in Scripture. And God says that if you lack wisdom to pray, and he will generously give you the wisdom that you need. The third means for understanding God's will is godly counsel. Godly counsel. Here's what Proverbs 12, uh, 15 tells us. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Oftentimes, the way that God gives us wisdom is through other believers, particularly older, wiser, more mature believers who have experiences and insight and discernment that we don't have. Here's what Proverbs 13, 20 tells us. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. One of the ways that we learn to walk in wisdom is by walking with people who already have it. Other people's wisdom rubs off on us. So, so let me take a moment here to address our, our graduates again, okay? Uh, because you are about to at least more fully um, enter the world, and you are about to uh, have some really important choices and decisions that you're going to make as to the kind of people that you are going to befriend and that you are going to begin to hang around. So I just want to tell you, listen, the decisions that you make here are absolutely critical, because if you choose wise and godly people, do you know what you will probably become? You will probably become a wise and godly person. On the other hand, if you choose foolish and ungodly people, you will very likely become a foolish and ungodly person. In fact, that uh, Proverbs 13, 20 verse goes on to say this. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Did you get that? Whoever walks with the wise, you walk with the wise, you'll probably become wise, if you walk with the foolish, you're going to suffer harm. The people that we choose okay, to be around, to hang around, to have input into our lives have a great impact in the kind of people that we become. Number three, and most importantly, walking in wisdom means being controlled by the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, Paul tells us not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with, or probably better translated, by the Spirit. Now, it might seem at first blush that Paul's comment about drunkenness here is kind of out of place, kind of comes from, from out of left field, but it's actually very fitting uh, in at least two ways. One, drunkenness is a mark of the darkness believers leave when they come into the light of Christ. 
So, so let me just say a word here uh, about drunkenness. And I know that even in our own church, there are various opinions about alcohol. And I don't have time to get into alcohol right now. Okay. And so, so some people would say uh, Christians should not partake. Uh, others would say Christians are fine to partake. And so, so let me j- just say this. I think you can make a really good case, okay, uh, from Scripture that consumption of alcohol in and of itself is not a sin. In fact, you notice that Paul doesn't say here, don't drink. He says, don't become drunk, right? So I'll just make that statement there. But, but let me just give a warning, particularly to the younger people in our, our, con- our congregation, all right? Uh, so, so because, um, how do I want to say this? Very carefully, of course, all right? Um, while it may be okay to consume alcohol, what's not okay is to become drunk, it's not okay to become drunk. And so, so we can have an, an attitude towards alcohol where we say, okay, it's okay to partake, but it's not okay to become drunk. And a wise person is someone who doesn't even get close. I'm going to leave it there and move on. All right. Paul's point though here is why this is such a big deal is that drunkenness is a mark of an unbeliever. It's a, a mark of the darkness that we came out of. Then two, Alcohol is something that controls, and Paul is using this as an illustration to point out that believers are not to be controlled by anything but the Holy Spirit. So to be filled by the Spirit means to be controlled by Him, right? Don't be drunk with wine because that's debauchery, but be filled, i.e. be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, so drunkenness is very simply an example here. Paul's saying, don't be drunk with wine, of course, but, but also don't be controlled by anything except for by the Holy Spirit. The little literal rendering of be filled here is be being filled. In other words, we're to be continually being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Paul's point um, is not here that we, we need to get more of the Spirit, but rather that we need to allow the Spirit to get more of us. Did you catch that? Some, some people interpret this to mean, hey, we just need to get more of the Holy Spirit. I just want to tell you, if you are a believer, you don't need any more of the Holy Spirit. You have all that you're ever going to get. When you became a believer, all right, the Holy Spirit came into your life. He, he, he came, as we saw in chapter 1, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. So we got all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to get. Jesus actually tells us that, that the, the Spirit gives without measure. We, we have the Spirit without measure. So the question isn't about whether or not we need to get more of the Spirit. The question is that the Spirit needs to get more of us. He needs to control absolutely everything that we are. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Now then, let's talk about what the spirit-controlled life looks like. What does it look like? What does it mean to be controlled by the spirit? Maybe I put it this way. How do you know if you are being controlled by the Holy Spirit? And what we're going to find out here is that, that it's kind of surprising what Paul has to say. The evidences of the Spirit actually controlling our lives. In verses 19 through 21, Paul goes on to say that the results of the Spirit-controlled life are singing, oh boy, (laughs) thanksgiving, we're okay with that, and submitting. There's another oh boy, right? If you are controlled by the Spirit, it's going to result in you singing, thanksgiving, and submitting. Let's walk through these. In verse 19, Paul says that when we're controlled by the Spirit, it will result in addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. In short, the spirit-controlled life is a singing life. Did you get that? The spirit-controlled life is a singing life. Here's uh, what John MacArthur says in his commentary on this passage. He says, whether he has a good voice or cannot carry a tune, the spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Now, I realize that some of us have good voices and some of us do not. Right here, okay? But I just have to tell you today that that is beside the point. Whether you have a good voice or you do not has absolutely nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here. Just throw that away. The point that Paul is making is that if the Spirit has control of your heart, then it will result in praise pouring forth from your lips. Did you get that? If you're being controlled by the Spirit, the result will be that singing will come out of your mouth. Make no mistake, one of the ways we display whether or not we are spirit-controlled is if we sing. And it's if we sing to the Lord and if we sing to one another. And I want to walk through this with you because I think it's an important point and note uh, for even where we are at the church. You will notice in verse 19, all right, that Paul says that, that the singing, uh, specifically in the church, has both a vertical component and a horizontal component to it. The vertical component is not hard for us to understand, right? We are to sing praises to our Lord. We are to praise Him for who He is and what He has done. We've already done that this morning. We've sang songs of praise and rejoicing over deep theological truths of who our God is, of what He has done for us. But you'll note that Paul not only says that we're to praise the Lord, we're to sing to the Lord, we're also to sing for one another. We are to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which means, okay, that our singing, okay, not only has this vertical component, it's not just between us and God, it's also between us and everybody else in the congregation. Why is this the case? Well, that's because we are supposed to sing in such a way that we are teaching one another the gospel and we are urging one another on in pursuit and application of the gospel. You see, as you sing the, those truths of the hymns and the songs that, that, that we sing, or at least that we, we put on the screen for you to sing, that's going to hopefully encourage everybody around you to learn to grab hold of those truths and to apply those truths to, to their lives. So let me just tell you this. I'm, I'm pretty confident that two or three days up from now, it might even be this afternoon, you're going to forget much of what I said today. And to be honest with you, I'm going to forget much of what I said today. But I can tell you, at least for, for some of you, and it's going to be true for me, what's still going to be resonating in your hearts, and those are the songs that we have sang together this morning. Music is powerful, is it not? It's extremely powerful. And, and oftentimes, of course, in our culture, uh, music is used uh, for uh, really evil and wicked purposes. But that's not the way that God intended it to be. And we have the opportunity to be able to redeem music and to use it in such a way that we help one another to grow in our understanding of the gospel and our application of the gospel. And I just have to tell you, I, I would have to say that some of the most powerful times that we have together is where uh, as many of us as possible, the, the more, the, of course, the 
better are actually uh, rejoicing in these truths, okay, that we are singing. And as we are doing it with gusto, it's contagious. Let me just say this. The more that people sing, the more that your bad voice is going to be drowned out, okay? (laughs) But I have to tell you that that what, what, um, what spurs me on in my worship it is not great voices singing from the stage. It's by participation. And I could just say this, particularly from the men in our congregation, as they sing out of hearts uh, with clearly on fire and in passion for their Savior. And so let me tell you, we've come a long way in this, but we still have a long, long way to go. We, we want to be a spirit-filled church, do we not? We want to be a spirit-filled church. What is it required if we're going to be a spirit-filled church? We have to sing. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. So with that said, in verse 20, Paul goes on to say that a second result of the spirit-controlled life is thanksgiving. Now, we've looked at this verse a couple of times in the last several months, so I'm not going to spend much time on it now. But know that when the spirit controls our life, it results in us being thankful always and for everything. A spirit-controlled Christian is a continually thankful Christian. Here's why. When the spirit controls us, he continually reminds us about what God has done for us in and through Jesus. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, in fact, probably the primary role of the Holy Spirit, is to glorify Jesus Christ. So so, so let me just say this, all right? Um, Sometimes we can get so caught up in the Holy Spirit, and we we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we really want the Holy Spirit to be present, we really want the Holy Spirit to be evident. But, But let me just tell you, when the attention is all on the Holy Spirit, something is wrong, because Jesus told us that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not going to draw attention to himself, he's going to draw attention to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role is to magnify and uplift Jesus. And so the evidence of the Spirit's work in a church is whether or not Jesus Christ is being honored and being glorified, not whether or not we're seeing evidences of the Holy Spirit. The primary evidence of the Holy Spirit is that people are rejoicing and praising Jesus. And that's the kind of Spirit-controlled and Spirit-filled church that we want to be. And the result of that, of course, is that we are giving thanks giving, that we are thankful for what Jesus has done for us. So if you want to know how you can actually live out Ephesians 5.20, how you can be thankful always, no matter what, then learn to allow the Spirit to control you, because if He does, so one of the results will be thanksgiving. Finally, in verse 21, Paul says that the Spirit-controlled life results in submitting. Results in submitting. When we are Spirit-controlled, look at verse 21, it will result in submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, verse 21 is a hinge verse in both that it concludes this section in Ephesians and also introduces the next. Beginning in verse 22 all the way through uh, verse 9 of chapter 6, Paul's going to address submission uh, in the home and in society. So I'm going to teach on verse 21 here, but I'm also going to use it as a way to introduce what's coming next in Ephesians. And of course, that submission in marriage, uh, in the relationship between uh, parents and children and between employers and employees. So here in verse 21, Paul's giving a general principle regarding submission, and then in the coming verses he'll give the specifics of how submission should play out in our relationships. 
For now then, all we need to grab hold of is the fact that being spirit-controlled means submitting to those in authority over the, us. Over us. So uh, here's going to be something really, really important. We need to understand what this word submission means. The word submission is a military term, and it has to do with order. It literally means to arrange in rank under. Paul is telling us here that the mark of the spirit-controlled life is arranging ourselves in rank under the authority that God has placed in our lives. This means that what Paul is talking about here is not what some would call reciprocal submission. He's not saying that we are all called to uh, submit to one another in exactly the same way. He, he can't be saying that because A, that's not what the word submission means, and B, the examples that he's going to give of submission are not examples of reciprocal submission, i.e., the relationship between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between employers and employees are not reciprocal submitting relationships. They're just not. So, so there's a lot of people who want to say that we're all called in the church, okay? We're all as believers called to submit to one another in the same way. And that's just patently not true. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not what he's talking about in any place um, in the New Testament where this view or this word submitting is in view. Instead, his point here is that a mark of the spirit-controlled life is uh, submission to the God-ordained authorities in our lives. Now, I know in bringing this up, all right, that this issue of submission is something that we struggle mightily with today. So I want to point out three things here that we'll really talk about more in the weeks to come, but I just want to just want to kind of lay the groundwork here. Let me give you three things that might help as we struggle and wrestle with this whole idea of submission. One is that everyone is under authority. We are all under authority. We all have God-ordained authorities that we are called to submit to. I think we get this idea sometimes. We get kind of turned around backwards with this idea that there are some people who have to submit and there are some people who don't. And I just want to tell you, there has never been a Christian in the world who has not had to submit to someone. The question isn't whether or not you have to submit. It's just whom you have to submit to. So, so, for example, you all know I'm, I'm the lead pastor here, right? And just by definition of the, the title that I've been given, the role and the responsibility that I've given, I have a measure of authority. However, that does not mean that I don't have people that I am called to submit to. I am under authority just as much as anybody else is. I'm under the authority of the elder team, and I'm under the authority of the church membership, all right? Ultimately, I'm under the authority of Jesus Christ. And guess what? So are all of us. We're all called to submit to him. Two, no human authority is absolute. No human authority is absolute. We'll look at this more closely when we get to verse 22 uh, in a couple of weeks. But there, of course, Paul tells wives that they're to submit to their husbands. But he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Which means the husband's authority uh, only extends to the point where he is leading his wife in a way that would lead her to submit and to follow Jesus. So that if he would ever ask her or lead her to submit in a way that she wouldn't be able to submit to Jesus, then she shouldn't submit to her husband. She should submit to Jesus. And the same thing is true in every human relationship. Jesus' authority is absolute. No human's is. Three, the grounds for our submission 
is our reverence for Jesus. So, so notice what Paul says there again, because this is really, really key. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word reverence is better translated fear. But it's not fear in, in the sense of being afraid of him, but rather fear in the sense of being in awe of him. So, so you have to get this. Our, the ground of our submission is being awestruck by Jesus. You see, submission is ultimately about our relationship with him. It's about being so overwhelmed by what he has done for us that we willingly submit ourselves to whomever he calls us to submit ourselves to. You see, submission to human authorities flows out of our submission to Jesus. Can I just say that again? Submission to human authorities is all about submitting to Jesus. It's ultimately about our relationship to him. So I want to ask you today, why should you submit to Jesus? All right. So we, you with me here? We all have people that we're called to submit to, all right? Whether it's a husband, whether it's a parent, whether it's a boss, whether it's a pastor, whatever it may be, we, we all have, I mean, police officer, I mean, you just go down the line. We all have, honestly, lots of people that we are called to submit to. At the end of the day, submission is not about a human relationship. It's about a relationship with our Savior. And why should we submit to him? We should submit to him because he submitted for us. He submitted for us. Let's go back 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, at some point in time, God the Father said to God the Son, I need you to go to earth, take on human flesh, die naked on a Roman cross, bear the shame and guilt of the entire world, be temporarily separated uh, from me. I need you to go and do it so those human beings who have rebelled against me can be rescued. Jesus Christ, New Testament is very clear, as the second person of the Trinity, God himself is in submission to God the Father. And so when God the Father told him to go, he didn't argue, okay? He didn't wrestle with whether he should do it or not. He said, you're sending me, I'm going to go. And so he came. And there's a fascinating passage in John 19 uh, where Jesus is before Pilate. And Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, don't you know that I have authority to release you or to crucify you? You know how Jesus responded? First he said, well, you would have no authority if it were not given to you from above. Who gave Pilate the authority over Jesus? God the Father did. And Jesus being under Pilate. Now, now think about this. The king of the universe was willing to submit himself to a wicked, evil man to be crucified. Why did he do it? He did it for you. He did it so that your sins could be forgiven. He did it so you could be adopted into God's family. He did it so that you could be on your way to heaven and not on your way to hell. And because he was willing to do that for you, now you in turn can do that and frankly should do that for you. And so I want to say this, all right, in closing. Walking in wisdom ultimately means being so in awe of what Jesus was willing to do for you, that he was willing to become obedient, submissive to death, even death on the cross for you, that now you are willing to go wherever he tells you to go, to do whatever he calls you to do, and to expend your life in whatever way he calls it to expend it for his kingdom's sake. And my friends, that ultimately is wisdom. Ultimately, what wisdom is, is doing whatever Jesus tells you that you need to do. 
Will you walk in wisdom? Will you submit your life to him? Let's pray.